0: Hallelujah. would not you turn in your Bibles with me this evening, and we're going to read some scripture. Hallelujah. 1 Corinthians 2 and 5. When you've got 1 Corinthians 2 and 5, just flip over to Hebrews 11 and 6. And then when you have those two, you can flip over to Luke 8 and 22. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2 and 5. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And Hebrews eleven and six tells us, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And then in Luke eight, twenty-two to twenty-five. Now it came to pass on a certain day that they went into a ship with that he went into a ship with his disciples. And he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake. And they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. And they ceased and there was calm. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they being afraid wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the water. And they obey him. Tonight I want to minister with the help of the Lord. Mislaid faith. Turn to someone and say, where is your faith? The Oxford Dictionary gives two definitions of faith. Faith is something. Oh, sorry, faith is to have complete confidence or trust in someone or something, and it's also a strong belief in the doctrines or teachings of a religion, based on spiritual conviction rather than proof. Too many times, when we think of faith, our natural incl- inclination is to tie it to religion. However, faith can be tied to many things. The Oxford Dictionary defines trust as a firm belief in or to believe in the reliability, truth or ability of someone or something. It is the acceptance of the truth of a statement without evidence or investigation. The writer of Hebrews tells me the same thing. However, he he uses the word faith and not trust. Hebrews 11 and 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith and trust and even belief are interchangeable. They are interwoven closely in their definitions and in demonstration. So much so that we cannot have complete confidence or be persuaded by something or someone without complete assurance, trust or belief in that something or someone. You cannot have faith without trust, belief without faith, trust without faith or belief without trust. Whichever way it is permutated, you cannot have one without the other. Hebrews 11 and 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The word faith that appears in the scriptures that we've read thus far is translated from the Greek word pistis, which means moral conviction, persuasion, assurance, belief. The Greek word for believe in Hebrews 11 and 6 is pistio, which means to have faith in, commit to, to trust. Even in the Greek, we can see how the definitions overlap. To believe, that is to have faith in or commit to or trust, indicates an outward demonstration. It is more than just something that happens internally in our mind. When we truly believe or we have faith or we trust in something or someone, it is demonstrated through our conversation that is our behaviour and our lifestyle. When we have faith in someone or something, there is an outward demonstration of that faith. When we are truly committed to someone or something, there is a behaviour that reflects that commitment. When we trust in someone or something, our actions reflect that trust. With this in mind, Hebrews 11 and 6 reads, It is impossible to please God if we do not have complete trust and confidence in Him. If we we are without demonstration of moral conviction, persuasion, assurance, and and a firm belief in Him. The next part of the verse goes on to describe the kind of faith that pleases Him. For he that cometh to God must demonstrate behaviour that reflects and substantiates that He is. The word, I am, Sorry, the words "am," "is," and "are" are derivatives of the verb "to be." They express existence, a state of being real and alive. Here in this verse of scripture, here this verse of scripture references the "I am," the self, the self-existing one revealed unto Moses, the one Jesus t- declared to be in John eight fifty-eight and John eighteen and five. The kind of faith that pleases God demonstrates behavior that verifies his existence and expresses an an assurance that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Hebrews chapter 11 is a brief summary of people that displayed this kind of faith. Romans 12 and 3 tells us that God hath dealt to every man a measure of faith. God has distributed to each one of us a portion of faith. We do not know the exact amount we have, nor can we measure what we have been given. Faith is not quantitative. It cannot be measured with a specific unit of scale. When Jesus describes someone's faith, it's either great or it's little. If Jesus was using a Likert scale, it would only have a range of two choices, ten being great and one being little. Whether we have great or little faith, one thing is for sure, we all have faith. But where have we put it? A place for everything and everything in its place. Unfortunately, there are times when things just don't get put back where they belong. And we have trouble finding them. When this happens, the object is mislaid. To mislay something is to unintentionally put an object where it cannot be readily found and so to lose it temporarily. It hasn't been put back in its place. Whether it's keys, glasses, lunchboxes, jumpers and for some their teeth, most of us at one time or another have not put something back in the place where it belongs and we have mislaid that thing. Faith is given to us by God. So that we can place it back into God If we do not place it in him We have not put it where it belongs And therefore we have mislaid our faith Abraham is considered the father of the faithful However there was a time when Abraham mislaid his faith Abraham was 75 years old when God calls him And makes a covenant with him Abraham is to leave what he knows and spend the rest of his life as a nomad, travelling to a land that God will show him and that his descendants will inhabit. Abraham departs as the Lord instructs and takes his wife and Lot, his nephew, with him. At 75 years old, Abraham and Sarah have no children. Years pass. In fact, 11 years pass. Within that time, God reiterates his promise of children three times, each time elaborating further on the future of Abraham's descendants and the land in which they would dwell. In the initial conversation, Abraham's descendants are described as a great nation. As Abraham begins his journey, the Lord appears to him and reaffirms that the land he's camped on will belong to his seed. God will speak to Abraham another two times, yet discouragement sets in. Each childless year that passes, Sarah gets older and the promise of a son seems further away. Yes, God had said, but their reality wore away at the hope of the promise. Where is your faith, Abraham? Where is your faith, Sarah? Sarah is 75 years old and the need for an heir continually plagues her thoughts, their thoughts. The excitement of the promise has well and truly worn off. He sees the effects of ageing on her body and she experiences it. She complains of the aches and the pains and the fatigue. The cold, hard reality is the longer the wait, the more unlikely childbearing and the hope of an heir becomes. In Genesis 16 and 2, Sarah decides they need a reality check and comes up with a solution. Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. Sarah's case was presented in such a logical and rational manner, with the reality of their circumstances bearing down on them both. Abraham temporarily forgets the promises of God and focuses on their present situation. Facts. He's not getting any younger. And Sarah couldn't have any children when she was young and strong. And she's much older now. The maid could be their solution. Hagar belonged to Sarah. She was Sarah's personal servant, a purchase made in Egypt. We need to be careful who we bring into our lives as future decisions may be influenced by those relationships. Abraham takes his faith and instead of placing it where it belongs, he he mislays his faith by placing it in the wisdom of man. Hagar was young and still in her childbearing years. The plan made sense and it would produce the desired outcome of an heir. Hagar was not what God had in mind. Sarah and Abraham took matters into their own hands. They succumbed to their own wisdom and cultural norms to satisfy a longing for a son and the need for that heir. Their solution only caused problems for them then and continues to cause problems for their descendants today. They had put their faith in an answer that was apparent to them and lived with the consequences, which were not pleasant and were a constant reminder to them of what happens when you don't put your faith where it belongs and you mislay your faith. However, we know a realignment of faith took place because we read in Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12, through faith, also Sarah herself received strength to re- conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang, sprung there, therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Sarah was ninety, and Abraham was a hundred when Isaac was finally born. 25 years after the initial promise God did what he said he would do His promise his promises will be fulfilled in his time We cannot force the hand of God neither can we make his will happen There is a plan and a process in the waiting Abraham and Sarah grew to have the kind of faith that pleases God Yes Abraham demonstrated the kind of faith that pleases God when he left all he, he knew, but that was only the beginning of his relationship with God. That was only an introduction to this God that could not be seen or carried, but was real and alive. With each encounter with God, their faith increased. As the lad grows, he is the pride and joy of his mother and father. There is no doubting he's a mama's boy. Her only child, the child of her old age. Together Abraham and Sarah rejoice every day in their living, breathing promise from God. Genesis 22 and 1 reads, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon on one of the mountains which I will tell thee of, where is your faith, Abraham? This time, Abraham's faith is not mislaid in the wisdom of man, but is firmly planted in the power of God. As he prepared to obey and do what God asked him to do, he focused on what he knew. God had said Isaac was the promised son. He was the beginning of a great nation. God had said several times that his descendants would be too many to number like the dust of the earth, like the stars of heaven, too many to count. God will do what he said he would do through Isaac, the promised one. God knows what he's doing. And all the while he was preparing to offer up his son, his only son, as a burnt offering to the Lord. Hebrews 11:17 and 19, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac and that he had and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, according, sorry, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Abraham's faith in God is truly demonstrated in his obedience to give up what he loved most. In this single act, he proved that he was fully persuaded in the existence of God and that his that his assurance was in God to take care of the situation. His faith had grown and this pleased God. Abraham brought his son and came before God in complete trust and confidence in a God that was alive and all-powerful, able to raise him up even from the dead. Abraham was convinced that God would not fail him and that God rewarded those who diligently sought after him. Her story is not listed in Hebrews 11. But she comes under the theme mentioned in verse 35. Women receive their dead, race to life again. In 2 Kings 4, we read of the hospitality of a Shunammite woman. It was part of their custom and still is to some extent that strangers in town should not eat alone. The Shunammite woman insisted on hosting Elisha each time he came, each time he passed to Shuman. After some time, she perceived that he was a man of God And in her desire to please God, she decided to bless the man of God. So she asked her husband to build a room onto their house and furnish it with necessities for Elisha to lodge in when he passed through. Hospitality was a cultural norm from that part of the world. Taking a stranger in to feed them when they passed through town was the done thing. However, she took it a step further. It was not required of her, but it was in her means to do it. The building and the preparing of a room was an expression of worship unto God and a blessing for the man of God. And it fell on a day that Elisha came into town and he retired to his room and he decided that he wanted to do something for the Shunammite woman to thank her for the room and her continual hospitality. So he asked Gehazi his servant to ask the woman if there was anything he could do for her. Perhaps he could put a good word in with the king or with the mayor. And the woman replied that she lived in good standing within her community. And had, had no need for anything. However, Gehazi did notice that she had no son and that her husband is old. So Elisha called the woman and told her that in a year she would embrace a son. And so it, was, and so it came to pass that the Shunammite woman conceived and in the season Elisha had said she bore a son. Years passed and when the tri- child had grown, he was out in the field with his father when he was struck with a violent headache. He was taken into his mother where he died a short time later. Her promise died in her arms. The rug had been pulled out from beneath her. Had she not told the prophet not to give her hope? She had come to terms with the situation in her life. She had accepted that she would be childless and she had focused her energy on other things but to be given a child and then for it to be taken from you she was des- devastated where is your faith Shinamite woman she didn't mislay her faith she placed it in what she didn't place it in what she saw and she knew exactly where it was and and what she knew exactly where it was and it was not in her current situation Her faith extended beyond what was before her into the realm that was unseen yet tangible. Yes, her son was dead, but she did not allow her emotions free reign and and to be caught up with the reality set before her. She does not rent her clothes and wail wail loudly, as would be the natural thing to do. Although grief threatens to grip her heart, she does not give in to it. She knows what must be done. She places her son in the prophet's room, on the prophet's bed, and closes the door. The woman goes out to see her husband and tells him that she is going to see the prophet. She does not burden him with cold, hard facts, as this reality is only temporary. She must get to the man of God. When her husband asks why, she does not go into details. Her response is a statement of faith. It shall be well. She makes haste to get to Elisha. As she approaches Mount Carmel, Elisha sees her coming and sends Gehazi, his servant, to inquire of her if it is well. Is it well with her? Is it well with her husband? Is it well with the child? Not wanting to delay the process of getting to the prophet, she answers, it is well. It is not until she gets to Elisha that she allows him to see her grief and expresses her disappointment. Elisha immediately sends Gehazi to go and pray for the child. However, the woman insists that she would not leave Elisha, so he goes back with her. When they arrive, Gehazi has done what he was instructed to do. He has placed the prophet's staff on the face of the child, but the child was not revived. Elisha goes into the room where the dead child lays on his bed, he shuts the door and begins to pray. After some time, warmth returns to the child's body and a little more time passes and the child sneezes seven times and is restored to life and to his mother. The Shunammites' complete trust and confidence in God enabled her to look beyond what was obviously before her. It is why she could say it is well to her husband and it is well to Gehazi. At a time when her faith could have easily been mislaid, She knew exactly where it was. It was anchored in God. Her assurance was in the life-restoring prayers of the prophet and in the God that he served and heard them. Her faith was in a God that did not fail nor disappoint. Her measure of faith did not stand in man's wisdom, but in the power of God. Hallelujah. Job is not named in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 but he is a man who suffered on many levels because of his faith in God. Job's faith pleased God. Job had complete trust and confidence in God. He was a man of moral conviction and everyone knew it, as it was clearly demonstrated in his life. His persuasion in the existence and supremacy of God was such that he offered sacrifices to God on a regular basis on behalf of his children in case they had sinned. Job demonstrated his faith clearly. He was a man that eschewed evil. That means he avoided it. He kept away from it and anything that looked even a little bit like it. Job's life had no grey areas. He was committed to, had faith in and trusted God. So when God removes the hedge of protection around Job and gives Satan permission to attack Job's faith, to attack Job, Job's faith is such that his reaction to the calamities... Is worship. Job chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Job's faith remained intact through the loss of his children, his servants, And his livestock. God is pleased with Job. He has such confidence in Job's faith and commitment that he allows Satan access to his flesh. Job's faith is amazing. He's unaware of the conversations that have taken place in heaven. He does not have a direct word from God. No promise of deliverance or restoration. Neither does he have the written word of God to find comfort in. He's covered in boils. His heart is filled with grief. He's lost his children, his assets, his house, all but the house and the land he lives on. He's surrounded by negativity. His wife has mislaid her faith. She cannot see past her grief. She's buried her children and now her husband is covered in boils. Her reaction is a natural one. Curse God and die. It's the kind of reaction that Satan wanted from Job. His friends come to offer him comfort, in hope, and hope, in, and in sorry. His friends came to offer comfort, in hope that their insights and wisdom would bring relief to Job in his circumstances. Only their wisdom is not the wisdom of God, and full of superstition. The thought of the day was that if you did good and God was pleased with you, you would prosper. But if you sinned, you would be punished by calamity or sickness. This kind of thinking is still around today and lies beneath the surface of several false teachings that are prevalent that are prevalent. You must have done something really wrong, Job. You've offended God big time. It's the only reasonable explanation for the disaster that's befallen you. One by one, his friends take turns to make Job see the error of his ways. Job doesn't listen to the lies and the unconstructive criticism. He he's being bombarded with. He knows that his life is upright before God and he knows the only thing he can do is trust in God and, and what he knows about God. Job 13 and 15 says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. God had no, sorry, Job had no way of knowing how his story would end. God did not give him a glimpse of his future, did not let him in on the fact that his latter end would be more than his beginning. Job had no way of knowing that he would die being old and full of days. Yet every day during this trial, his faith remained in God. Every day that he medicated his boils and longed for his children, he had complete confidence and trust in God. No matter what life had thrown at him, no matter, no matter its twists and turns, he made up his mind that he would remain committed. He would have faith and trust in God. He would have the kind of faith that pleases God, the kind that exalts God to his rightful place. Throughout his trouble, Job did not sin and kept his integrity before God. In our opening scripture in Luke 8, we read the account of Jesus calming the storm. I don't, want to play, I don't want to downplay the storm. Most of the disciples were professional fishermen. They spent their life on a lake and had weathered and survived many storms. So for them to wake up Jesus and say we perish, it was a pretty bad storm. However, I do want to focus on the red letter words. Let us go over to the other side of the lake and where is your faith? Jesus was on a mission. He wanted to get to the other side of the lake. So he gives the instruction, and in that instruction is their destination. Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And that is where they were heading when the storm hit them. Had the storm not come, there would have been no problem with carrying out Jesus' instructions. Peter, James, John, and Andrew would navigate the boat to the other side. Not a problem. They had this. They had done this before many times. However, a storm hit them out of nowhere. No problem. The fishermen knew what to do in the event of a storm. Disciples, where, are you, where is your faith? Easy one. We believe Peter, James, John and Andrew have the ability and experience to bring us to the other side safely. Their faith stood in the wisdom of men that had withered, weathered and survived many storms before. But the waves got higher and the seas got rougher And the winds blew harder and the panic set in. They could no longer control the boat or the amount of water the boat is taking on. The fact that Jesus told them to go to the other side is now irrelevant because they're all going to die and Jesus sleeps. Regardless of whether they had control or not, they were going to make it to the other side because Jesus said they were. They did not know that Jesus had an appointment with a man in the country of the Gadarenes. And many times we do not know what is on the other side of the lake. We've just been given the instruction to go to the other side. But it's while we're obeying the instructions, while we're doing the will of God, that a storm hits us out of nowhere and reveals where we have placed our faith. Where is your faith? Have you mislaid it? is Is it in our own ability, education, finances? Is it in our friends who have more experience with boats and storms than we do? Do we have mislaid faith? Or is our faith in the one that calms the storms, that speaks to waves and the wind and they obey him? In the same account in Matthew 8 and 26, Jesus asks them, why are you fearful? It seems like a dumb question. Uh, Jesus, if you haven't noticed, there's a storm. (laughs) And like we've never experienced anything like this before and we're sinking. Like we're going to die. Yet Jesus doesn't think it's a dumb question. And he's confused by their fear. Didn't I say we were going to the other side? Take your eyes off what you see. Take your faith and place it in me. They panicked because their faith was mislaid. It was not in the master who gave the instruction. They had yet to understand who they had in their boat. Jesus speaks to the storm and there is immediate calm. And they marveled, what manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the water and they obey him. Where is your faith? Jesus asleep in a boat in a storm reminds me of Peter asleep in a prison cell after James is killed. Peter is aware that Herod has the same plans for him, yet he's asleep. How can you sleep, Peter? Don't you know that you're in prison with the intention of also being killed? Where is your faith, Peter? Peter is unperturbed by his circumstances. His faith is not mislaid. He knows exactly where he has placed his faith. His faith... No longer stands in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. His faith has come a long way since the first time Jesus asked him where his faith was. Jesus had told Peter that he would get old and that he would not die by the sword. John 21 and 18. So Peter could sleep. He did not know how he would get out of prison. He did not know how he could escape from Herod, but he did not allow those little things to sway him. His faith remained anchored in the words of Christ. If Jesus said it, it would come to pass. Peter had complete trust and confidence in his God to to deliver him. It was not his time yet. He firmly believed in the reliability and truth of the words Jesus had spoken directly to him. He had accepted the truth of those words without evidence or investigation. Peter completely trusted, had faith in and was committed to Jesus. So when the angel arrives to break Peter from prison, he thinks he's dreaming. And he goes along with it until he wakes up in the middle of town. Where is your faith? Where will you find your faith when the storms of life hit, when the trouble comes? Will our measure of faith be found in God, the kind of faith that pleases him, or will we take our measure of faith and put it in other things? things that we can see, things that we can touch. We can put our faith in a person or we can put our faith in our jobs, in our abilities and even our finances. However, the results are never what they should be. People let us down, we can lose our job, our abilities may not be enough to get the job done and our finances may run out. Job had people, abilities, finances and he was a great businessman. Yet in a moment those things were snatched from him, but he still had his faith in God. And that's what saw him through. Where is your faith? Have you mislaid your faith? When life throws you curveballs, where will your faith be found? Your actions will demonstrate where you have placed your faith. Abraham and Sarah took it upon themselves to help God with the childless problem. They demonstrated their faith was placed in the wisdom of of man, in a good idea, in a younger lady. When Abraham was was asked to offer up Isaac, his actions demonstrated his faith, that it was placed in an all-powerful God that was able to raise his son from the dead. The woman of Shuman, when she lost her son, made haste to get to the prophet. In her loss, she demonstrated her faith was placed in the one that gave her the boy in the first place. He could raise him from the dead through the man of God. Job, in his prosperity and in his suffering, demonstrated that his faith was placed in one that giveth and the one that taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the middle of a storm, the disciples demonstrated where they had put their faith, in their abilities, and they were overcome with fear. And they feared for their lives. Peter, in a prison with a death sentence awaiting him, demonstrated where he had put his faith, and he slept through his deliverance thinking he was dreaming. Where is your faith? Have you mislaid it? Or is it where it should be? Why don't we stand this evening?